This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Freeby, and this week, we're in Kentucky. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states. And when you hear the cold, you know so well, sisters speak out. Amelia here. Welcome back to season three of the 50 Feminist States podcast. This is the last episode of season three. I'm excited and sad and all of the feelings because this means that now we've been to 25 states together. That is half of the states in the US, not including, of course, protectorates, territories, and other spaces that hopefully we'll get to after we finish the 50 states. But this episode today was one of my favorite interviews of the season. I feel like I say that a lot. It's always true. And for this episode, I got to talk to Hannah Drake, who is an author, an activist, a blogger, a poet. She does so many amazing things. And through it all, I think really what ties it all together is the strength and clarity of her voice. So I was so happy to be able to record this interview with her. That's what I love about podcasting is actually hearing people say their words in their own voices. As we wrap up season three, I just want to remind you that you can keep up with 50 Feminist States between seasons by following us on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. That's F-I-F-T-Y Feminist States. Or by subscribing to our newsletter. If you go to 50feministstates.com slash newsletter, you can sign up. I send notes there when I'm on the road traveling or when a new episode comes out sometimes or with just other behind the scenes announcements. So that's a great way to keep in touch as well. So again, that's 50feministstates.com slash newsletter or F-I-F-T-Y Feminist feministstates.com slash newsletter. As I already mentioned, today's episode is with Hannah Drake, who lives in Louisville, Kentucky. We're going to hear about how she got to Louisville, her writing practice, um, where some of the ideas for a few of her most popular poems and blog posts have come from. So we'll hear her talk about a blog post she wrote called the Don't Move Off the Sidewalk Challenge and about a poem she wrote called Spaces that she'll actually perform for us at the very end of the episode. She also shares, I think, some really important thoughts about white feminism, speaking as a black woman to white women in the U.S., sharing how white feminism forgets the experiences of black women and women of color across the country. And she says something I really love that I'll highlight again, kind of when after she says it, talking about the way that this wave of resistance coming after Trump's election can't just be in response to Trump and can't just think that right now is the bad time and things are going to get better and we're all going to go back to our comfortable lives because for so many people in the US, their lives have never been particularly comfortable. And the people who right now during this time are feeling like they're, they've lost their comfort for the first time. It's kind of like, well, welcome to the resistance, but you don't just get to go back to brunch afterwards. So Hannah will say that even more eloquently when we get toward the end of the episode. I'm so appreciative to her for being on the 50 Feminist States podcast. And without further ado, here's Hannah Drake. My name is Hannah Drake. I am a spoken word artist in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm actually from Colorado, 
but I've lived in Kentucky for a little over 20 years and my family is, is from Kentucky. That gets me right into uh, my next question then. So you ha- your family's from Kentucky. You've been in Louisville for 20 years. Like what initially brought you to Louisville and why have you stayed for so long? So this is an interesting story because a lot of people often ask me, why would you come to Kentucky from Colorado? Mm-hmm. Um, because it just seems like two very um, different states. But my family's originally from Kentucky, and then they went to Colorado, and there I was born. And when I was about 12, my mom and dad divorced, and my dad came back to uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And so I hadn't seen him for a number of years. And at that time, um, I went to college, I had a baby, and I was in an abusive relationship. And I went to a battered woman shelter and in this shelter was a communal space and they had a payphone on the wall and I was walking through the communal space and the payphone was ringing. And for some odd reason, I picked it up, which I don't like to talk on the phone now. I don't like to, didn't like to talk on the phone then. So I don't know why I would pick it up, but, (laughs) (laughs) but on, on the other line was my dad who I had not talked to in a number of years. Wow. When I picked it up, he said, Hannah. I said, hello. And he said, Hannah. He instantly, of course, knew my voice. And I said, how did you know that I was here? And he said, your mom told me and come home. And so I packed three bags. They were mismatched bags and went to the Greyhound and made my way to Louisville, Kentucky. I remember crossing over the Ohio River And I thought, I I didn't know I was going to stay um, in Kentucky, but I ended up, uh, here I am. So it's now home, certainly home for me. Oh, wow. That's such a a powerful story. Thank you for sharing it. When in that journey did you start, you know, writing and performing poetry? Probably almost as soon as I, I got here. I've always loved writing and reading, and I went to school and studied communications I my work has always and my writing has always centered around some form of social justice and um I was fortunate enough in 2016 I wrote um a poem formation that went viral and I've been writing for quite a long time it was the very first thing that I'd ever written that went viral which was about uh social justice and it really kind of opened up a lot of doors for me to be able to speak in that um arena mm-hmm. But, um, so, you know, poems can only be so long. They can't go on and on forever. And so much was happening in the world with um, the presidential election that I knew I had more to say than just what I could write in a poem. So then I started uh, my blog, which uh, has been pretty successful. And I'm able to discuss uh, so many different topics, but most of them do center around feminism, race, and politics. Yeah. Can you share a little bit more, maybe like an example of a poem or a blog post or a few two that you've written, just like more specifically about feminism, race, or politics? Um, one that went went viral. I wrote it last year, and it's still uh, one of my most read blogs this year. It was called uh, Do Not Move Off the Sidewalk, Holding Your Space in a White World. Mm. And um I noticed I was at the airport here in Louisville and I know, and I was on the walking runway. You can, you know, walk on one side or stand still and take you to the airport. And there was a white man 
in front of me and he had his earphones in just kind of oblivious to what was going on around him and he was in the center of the the runway and behind me I could hear a one well I noticed she was a woman once I saw her but I could hear someone walking fast you could tell they were moving at a fast pace I turned around and it was a, a black woman and she had her luggage running behind her and she's trying to get past me and past this man mm-hmm. so I move over as much as I can to the side so she can get past me but when she got to him she stopped and she didn't ask him to move and I wondered why why was that just the expectation that he didn't have to move out of her way mm-hmm. and um, later on we were talking about this on Twitter someone had mentioned this issue and I said oh that reminds me of a blog that I want to write about Uh, Black people and people of color holding their space in the world. And um, years ago, not so long ago, but years ago, there was an actual law that if um, Black people and white people were on the sidewalk, then Black people had to get off the sidewalk and let the white person pass. Um, But that still takes place today. A lot of Black people and people of color still accommodate white people in spaces. And so I challenged people I call it the do not move off the sidewalk challenge. And I challenge black people and people of color for 24 to 48 hours, just not to move out of the way of a a white person on the sidewalk or in any space and just see what happens. See who's expected to move first and not in a, now of course there's exceptions to this because sometimes you should move and you understand that inherently. Mm -hmm. But I challenge people to go beyond just, uh, the common courtesy of moving out of the way of someone and that, you know, they have packages in their hand or it's something like that outside of something like that, that's obvious and you should move out of their way. Just hold your space and see what happens. And I challenge white people to think about how they navigate spaces and do they expect people of color and black people to just move out of their way. So I didn't expect that this blog would take off the way that it did. And so many people could relate to this and so many people related to moving out of the way for white people and not understanding why they were doing that, Mm -hmm. why they were expected to always be the one to move first. And I said, that's just how uh, the world is set up and how we are conditioned as black people and people of color is to always accommodate white people in spaces. And it's not just um, your physical body, but I also speak about the spaces that we create and um, how this world creates spaces that are inclusive or exclusive. And you often know as a person of color, um, as a black person, as a woman, and especially as a black woman, you understand when spaces are just not designed for you. And I challenge people to think about the spaces that they create and how they accommodate and make people feel included or excluded in spaces. So that's a lot of um, what my work centers around. I feel like I did just see this like post search kind of challenge come up in my own like Instagram feeds again in the last month or so. So I can definitely tell it's still kind of um, asking people, asking, you know, Black folks to take up their space or white people to cede more space or consider what they're doing with space. I think it's still very much like in the ether and moving around the internet. Um, Yes. Well, what happened, um, uh, an author in London saw the challenge and wrote about it. So it came up again. 
And the same thing happened in London. And I told the author I wasn't surprised Mm -hmm. um, that the same thing that happened in America, especially with Jim Crow and these laws and you have to move out of the way, um, that the same thing would happen in London. And I'm confident that the same thing would happen around the world because Black people and people of color are often told to move, to minimize, to get out of the way, to be quiet, and to make room for everybody else. So I, I wasn't surprised when the very same thing happened. I would love to hear more about kind of the latter part of what you said um, when you're also thinking not just about you know physical space like sidewalks, but other spaces that we kind of create. And I'm imagining things like career space or like art spaces and how yeah. they may not be included. Could you speak a little more like what are the other spaces that you find yourself thinking more about whether you're included there or not and how you handle that in day-to-day life? Well, I actually, um, I wrote a poem and it's called Spaces, mm-hmm. which is about this very topic, um, which is my most requested poem ever. Um, mm-hmm. Everywhere I go, everyone wants to hear that particular poem. But I wrote the poem because I was at a museum and it was the community day and nobody there looked like me. And I thought, well, this is not my community, so I don't understand this museum having this community day and nobody, it doesn't look like community, everybody there was white. And I was part of a group of poets and singers. We were, there were 10 of us, we were all African-American and we were there to perform. And so we're standing off to the side and most of our work deals with social justice. And we were debating, like, we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to, you know, make anybody upset with what we have to say, but it's the truth. And finally, one of the members said, you know, forget it. We're just going to go do what we have to do. And by that time, I thought, I'm over it. I'm going to say what I have to say. And if they don't invite me back, well, so be it. I don't, I don't care. Mm-hmm. And when I went to perform, I remember there were two Black girls in the audience, very young girls, and they looked to be biracial. And I, I assumed the person they were with was their mother was a white woman. But these girls were looking at me perform and they were just staring at me like, who is this woman? And she's saying these things and they could relate to what I was saying. And she looks like me. So I came home that night and I wrote the poem Spaces because I tell people um, you're often called to be a space maker. And sadly for a black people and people of color were often the only black person in a room, in a physical space, and that could be in anywhere. Um, and but you have to be there, and you have to carry that a burden at times. You have to be the first person because you're making space for somebody that's going to come behind you. Um, and so sometimes that's difficult. I certainly don't like being the only black person in spaces, especially the only black woman in a space, Um, but I know that I'm there for a particular reason, and it's often because I know, like those two little Black girls in the audience, that's why I'm here, and that's why it's important for me to be in a space like this white museum with this art that um, we don't fully relate to. It certainly doesn't tell our story, and so in doing that poem, I was able to speak to a person at the museum and they really started looking at um, 
how they have curated this space. And you know when you've designed a space in a way to keep somebody out or to say this is not for you. Um, you can tell the way it's designed that it's not uh, made for you. I even remember outside of just the physical space, but I remember years ago I, was, I had a Wii and I wanted to do yoga on the Wii and it picks up your body movements. And for some reason, this game was not picking up my body. I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, I know the controls working. That's the battery. So I call the number on the back of this uh, yoga game. And the woman tells me the game was not designed with you in mind. Mm. So, right. So they have designed this game thinking that black people are not going to do yoga. And so, and so I thought, well, when you design things, I always tell people, especially artists, that anybody, start with equity at the forefront. Mm-hmm. Black people do yoga. Uh, people of color participate in yoga. In fact, that's where it began. You know, <laughs> and so when people design things, they like to slap equity on the back end. And mm-hmm. I keep telling people to start with equity on the front end, and then you don't have to try to redesign it. Uh, later on. So um, especially now I'm on a panel later this uh, year to discuss art in public spaces. And of course, here in Kentucky, uh, we have Confederate statues Mm -hmm. up. And it's always this debate about taking them down. And um, I tell people, you know, you know why they're up, because if, if it didn't matter, then there would be statues up of Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and and so many other Black activists. Why, why aren't those statues up everywhere? It, art matters, and what you put in a space matters. It says something about the values of this particular community, of this city. And so here in Louisville, we're still having this debate about Confederate statues. Um, and a, a while back, we had to go online and fill out this form about why the statues should come down. So they open it up to the community and you go online and you complete this form. And I said, it's shameful that I need to go online to debate my humanity on a form on the computer to tell you why this is offensive to a community. Mm -hmm. If you have a a selection of your population in this city that is African-American that is telling you this is a problem, then the city should respond and just take them down. And you may not fully comprehend, although I don't see why they can't at this point, why this is problematic. But sometimes full comprehension doesn't have anything to do with just compassion and compliance and trying to understand the community that you are in. So we are still constantly having this debate here. I mean, when they asked me to speak about it, I said, I'm not going to change my mind about it. I've said this 50 million different ways. Either you're going to take them down or you're not, but there's a reason that Kentucky still wants to keep the statues up. And that's the part that Kentucky needs to deal with. Yeah, I, when I was in Louisville, I saw the, um, is it the Castleman, Castleman. statue mm-hmm. that's been vandalized and like it's yeah. still like, had paint thrown on it. And like, it seems to uh, maybe just kind of exist in that sort of state now, like it's still there, but it's being protested. Yes, by the community and it isn't going away. And I can definitely relate to that reality being from North Carolina and the Mm -hmm. Silent Sam statue at UNC has been this huge 
point of controversy. And I think people are having those reckonings and having to face the fact that these statues are like literal embodiments of yes. the attachment to racism. So it's interesting for me to see that in Louisville also. Um, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about kind of the art scene in Louisville and what are things maybe that excite you happening there and or you kind of mentioned some of those struggles you'd faced in kind of the museum spaces or otherwise, but um, obviously you're doing great work there. So are there other people? What's the arts community like around you? I really like it seems recently that Um, certainly I can speak to Louisville Mm -hmm. is um, really trying to bring in African-American artists and artists of color. And I, that means a lot to me Mm -hmm. as well as trying to tell the complete story of Kentucky's um, um, Kentucky being involved in the slave trade. And I mean, Kentucky, likes to appear as if it was neutral in slavery, but that was not the case. Kentucky clearly um, sold black bodies down the river. That's where it comes from. They were sold downtown Louisville and then went down the Ohio River. Um, But now people are trying to tell these real stories of what um, has happened here. And one thing that intrigued me, I learned, I was working with the Fraser Museum and I learned a story of a couple named the Blackburns, who I never heard of, um, who were from Kentucky and they were slaves and they escaped to freedom all the way to Canada. And um, in telling of their story, if I've got this right, I believe they were doing some digging in Canada and unearthed some artifacts from this family. So it was a husband and wife. They had no children. And in the telling of this story, they said, um, like, Uh, everything about them was pretty much unknown after that. And that really stuck with us for sure. And we wanted to find a way to really tell this story, but not just the story of the Blackburn, but the story of all the unknown names of uh, Black people that we just will never know that really fought to get to freedom, that really fought for justice. And so right now we're currently working on Uh, a project called the Unknown Project, which will be at the Ohio River, which is where uh, many slaves tried to escape across the Ohio River to Indiana to freedom. Um, Right across, not right across, but across the river is part of the Underground Railroad where they would would go and and try to get to freedom. But I think it's very important. Um, And this is something that I'm seeing, not just in Louisville, but certainly across the South, is that people truly want to know what really happened. And I think it's time for an unearthing of these stories. And we can do that artistically, certainly. But I I really think it's important for us to really tell the truth about uh, what happened historically. Um, Certainly, we can't look in textbooks because a lot of them have been whitewashed with the history. But there are people and artifacts and information that will tell the true story of what happened. And I think we owe it to the people that were here before us um, to acknowledge you existed and you were here and you breathed and you had children and you worked and you had a life. And we need to acknowledge that and not cover it up because we don't want to face our past. 
really something I hear a lot from the activists and organizers I speak to and the artists I speak to is kind of this sense of ancestry and like really trying to tell the truth about the past and to bring stories to like public consciousness, but also just to like, for personal reason, like to have those personal stories of your own family, as well as like the places you live in and the people who lived there. And I'm just wondering, you know, those legacies also then carry forward into the future. And as someone who's a parent, I'm wondering kind of what you hope Louisville will look like in the future as a space where your daughter might live. Yeah, my daughter's here and my niece, who is seven, is here. And, you know, I tell my daughter all the time with the work that I do and the writing that I do that one thing I'm confident of is that I probably will not see the things that I'm writing about and that I'm fighting for. So you get up every day. My daughter and I were just talking about this. She was doing some stuff with um, trying to get people registered to vote. And, And that's been difficult at times. And it's very difficult, especially in this state where we know this is a key state, um, which we have Bevin and McConnell and Trump. And so we know this is a key state that we really need to work on getting people registered to vote. And so at times she does get discouraged um, that people, some people just don't take this as seriously um, as she believes that they need to, and certainly as I believe that they need to. But I told her, you continue to do the work and you have to go into it knowing that you may fight for something you will not see. And you may just be um, putting out breadcrumbs for somebody that's going to come behind you. So you go into the work already knowing that, and then you just start working. Um, And so I know that I'm working towards a Louisville I certainly won't see. Louisville is the fourth segregated city in the United States. Mm. Um, And so basically you have a city and then you have, the ninth street divide. And then you have black people, pretty much the majority of black people on the West end of Louisville, very segregated city. What I would like to see is for that to end. I think, um, and, and, and see, and here's the thing going back to the beginning of the conversation about spaces, that ninth street divide, which is a four lane um, road street highway, basically didn't just happen. That didn't just magically appear. It was designed that way. It was designed that way to keep Black people from entering in downtown. And so when people think about that, if we've made it, then we can undo it. We can fix it. It's not anything that can't be fixed. We just have to want to fix it and then do it. And so I would hope that Louisville would be um, not that way, where you don't have to cross a divide in order to see other people and to have other experiences. And we're always trying to bring kids and young people from the West End into downtown to have these experiences. And that's a problem for me. And I always ask, why don't you go to where they are? Or why don't you figure out how to cross pollinate these things so that it's not always us coming across in order to have an experience that all young people should be able to experience. So mm-hmm. hopefully that, that will end, but um, probably not in my lifetime here, but I'm going to keep, keep working. I told my daughter, she might see it. Mm-hmm. And certainly I hope my niece at seven will be able to experience a Louisville that's like that.
living in Chicago, I also wish that our work toward a less segregated city yes. is a reality for future generations because I definitely don't, I'm not also not confident I will see it in my lifetime. But is there anything else that you had in mind about kind of your work and feminism or feminism in Louisville that you wanted to share? Well, just feminism in, in general. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we know we're coming up on the 100th year next year of women's suffrage. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just spoke at an event for that. And one thing that I always stress and must stress, and I spoke at um, a woman's rally, you know, and they've had the, the pink hats and all that stuff, mm-hmm. is that w- I, I'm not ever going to break my arm to pat white women on the back for anything when it comes to feminism. I'm just not going to do that. Um, I think white women have played a very significant role in the oppression of black people and and people of color. And even when you think about feminism, people were left out of that. Black women were left out of that, often intentionally. And I think so when there was a fight for voting or a fight for women's rights or a fight, we have to look at how that fight did not include black women. So when I tell the story of feminism, it can be feminism or it can be white feminism. And I think it's important to look at where there are intersections and understand those intersections. And oftentimes a white women don't see that when it comes to black women. And so I always make sure to point that out. We are, um, women, but there are differences in us that I need you to recognize, that I need you to see, and that how I need to see you to see how some of the things you are doing are harming Black women and women of color. Um, and so I always try to stress that anytime I speak about feminism, I wrote this blog, um, Dear White Women, it's not you, it's me, I'm breaking up with you. Uh, and I got a lot of heat behind that. Mm-hmm. from a lot of white women, but many of them understood. I said, time and time again, we've tried and, and we're going to come together. We're going to make this work and we're going to work together in order to do this thing. And time and time again, I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed that 53% of you voted for Donald Trump. That disappoints mm-hmm. me. After everything that has been said, after everything that was done, you still cited on the side of someone that was racist. Racism was okay with you. And so, which makes me understand that me being a woman doesn't really matter. I'm a black woman and for you, racism was okay. And so even for those that didn't vote for for Trump, we still have these issues with our intersections that I think people need to certainly understand, to really pause and take a, a look at. Um, And so I always try to highlight those things just because we are women certainly does not mean we are working for the same agenda. Mm -hmm. And so I, I often, often, often talk to white women about white feminism and what that looks like and uh, white tears and crying and suddenly becoming the victim. And I tell them often when black women are fighting, your silence has been definitely loud. And now that Trump is in office and you might lose some privileges or access or rights, now you care. Mm -hmm. And 
I want to know where were you before that happened? Because Black women certainly have been fighting long before Trump got in office and will continue to fight long when he's out of office. And some white women are resisting. This is something else I wrote. You resist your way back to your comfort and mm. you resist your way back to brunch and you resist your way back to having like wine with your girlfriends on the weekend. And you want to resist your way back to that. And black women want to resist our way to change and to justice mm. and to freedom and to liberate. These are the things that we want. And I'm not trying to just resist and, and do a march and put on a hat until I can go back to being comfortable because black women were never comfortable. Mm-hmm. It was never easy for us, you know? And so this is what I want people to understand, like beyond this resistance, because this will fade. This will go away. Mm-hmm. Even if Trump wins again, he can't be in office forever. This will go away. But the issues that black women still face are, will be here. And mm-hmm. then what? Or then if, if, if he's out of office and, and somebody else is in, let's just say Warren or Harris or whoever, by whoever. And then are you comfortable now? Are you, okay, well, that's done. And so now we can go back to our brunches and our omelets and our wine. Like that doesn't, it doesn't change for us. We will still be on the front lines fighting. We are still burying our children too soon. We are still uh, underpaid. We are still overworked. We are still tired. So when does the fight stop for you? Or will it continue after this? And that's what I always want to stress to a certainly white women when it comes to feminism. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing all that. I think it's so powerful. And I love, um, you know, those lines you mentioned that you wrote, like resisting your way back to comfort or resisting your way back to brunch, um, which is this like iconography of white feminism, I think makes a lot of sense <laughs> and is definitely something that I see in white peer groups of mine all the time like an idea of that the point of resistance is just to get back a comfort that we've somehow lost during Trump's presidency and that misses the point I think entirely and is also what you're saying that's only available for some and will never liberate all of us correct um I wanted to ask if you would be open to sharing part of or one of your poems that you've written with listeners? I would love to, and I will share spaces since that's kind of um, what we've been talking about completely. So, okay. This poem is Spaces. It is difficult to stand in spaces, spaces that weren't designed for me, spaces that weren't created for people that look like me, spaces that scream, you do not belong here. Spaces that feel like sandpaper against my blackness, coarse and rough and painful and uneasy. Spaces that are void of signs, but still I can see them hanging in a not so distant memory. Signs that separated water fountains and restaurants, blatantly reminding people that these spaces were not made for them. And although the signs no longer remain, the architecture and atmosphere is constructed in such a way that I know and we know that these are not our spaces. We are simply standing in borrowed time to entertain the master's masses. It is difficult to stand in these spaces and be me, fully me, code switching my vernacular to make you feel comfortable. Why must my life dress itself up in discomfort for you to feel at ease? Why is my gender 
an issue in these spaces? Why must my hair look a certain way in these spaces? Why does my skin feel so heavy in these spaces? You see, these are spaces I no longer want to reside in. I do not enjoy being in these spaces. I no longer want to subject myself to these spaces, but then I am reminded. As I stand in these spaces and I see the faces of these two little black girls watching me perform in awe, because I'm a woman with kinky hair like them and skin that looks like theirs and lips that look like theirs standing in these spaces, spaces that have been designed in ways that have spoken to them at an early age, reminding them, baby, some spaces just ain't for your kind. You see, that is why I'm in these spaces being a shout in these spaces. It is for every Black person that has ever entered a room and wondered, would anyone look like them in these spaces? It is for every woman that has stood at the head of a boardroom table, wondering would she be considered equal in these spaces? It is for every LGBTQ person that has wondered could she safely be themselves in these spaces? It is for every Muslim woman that has wondered, could she wear her hijab in these spaces? You see, I remember those that stood in spaces not made for them, that marched on roads not paid for them, that sat down on seats and buses not earmarked for them, that sat down at counters and endured the humiliation of sitting in spaces so that one day I too could stand in these spaces. You see, that is why I'm in these spaces. It is for everyone that came before me, that sipped water at the colored only fountain, that marched into integrated schools and knew they would be just one of nine. It is for every black performer that stood on stages so that one day little black kids could know that they too could stand on these stages. It is for my mother, my mother, that stood in the space of a cotton field picking cotton for 80 cents a day. It is for everyone that will come after me, for them to know that they have a right to be in these spaces, to have a seat at the table, in these spaces, to have a voice, in these spaces, to have influence, in these spaces. You see, that is why I stand in these spaces, even when it makes me uncomfortable. And now some of you sit looking at me, and now you feel uncomfortable. But today you have heard me. You cannot unsee me. In this space, I belong. In this space, we are here. And we belong here in this space. Mm. <laughs> I heard the snap. Good. Thank you. <laughs> I wasn't sure if they'd come across, but I feel like <laughs> the appropriate response. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. That's such a powerful, powerful poem. And thank you. Really does, I think, speak to so much of our conversation today about so many of these things. Thank you so much. And well, thank you. Thanks so much to Hannah Drake for being on the podcast. You can find links to all of her work in the show notes for this episode at 50feministates.com slash podcast. I also just want to give a plug that Hannah has a new book out called Love, Revolution, and Lemonade. I've linked to that in the show notes as well. I also just want to give a special shout out and thanks to all of you listeners who have been here for season three. I am so so honored to share the stories of the activists and artists that we've had on the podcast and so thankful to you for listening. This season, we surpassed 10,000 downloads of the podcast, which just means 10,000 times that people have pressed play on their phone or their computer or wherever else. And I 
I'm so thankful to all of you who are hearing these stories. I hope that you're telling other people about them, that you're sharing them, and that you're starting to get a sense of how many amazing feminist activists and artists are out there across the country, particularly in the places that maybe we least expect them to be. As season three has moved across the South, I have just reflected so much on how the most embattled places produce the most creative resistance. And these episodes, I feel like, have just been so full of creative strategies for making art, for organizing people to resist together, for creating community change in ways that we can all, no matter where we are, learn from and live through. So thanks to everyone who's been on the podcast this season, Allison, Sean, Valerie, Shaylin, Diego, Marty, Hannah, Jamie, Jasmine, Sharice, Tori, Adrian, JLP, Alex, Lori, Hannah and Hannah for being on the third season of the 50 Feminist Hates podcast. This podcast obviously wouldn't exist without you. And I am so appreciative of you sharing your stories with me and everyone who's listened here. I'm not sure yet what's in store for season four, but as I said at the top of the episode, you can keep up to date by heading to 50feministates.com slash newsletter and subscribing to our newsletter or following us on Instagram at 50feministstates. Can't wait for 25 more states with all of you. Until then, I'll see you on the road. Cincuenta estados feministas Cincuenta estados feministas this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministstates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Naria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.